0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the Season 3 finale of the Harmful Habits Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Amin, and in this episode, Jamisa, Ben, and I talk about neurodiversity in families, otherwise known as neurospiciness. This season, we focused on how our cognitive behavioral inquiry concepts tie into our family lives, and next season, we will tie our evidence-based CBI topics to issues of race and intersectionality in our society, workplaces, and communities. We will be resuming with season four in a few weeks, and we'll be live again most Fridays at noon on TikTok at Healing Harmful Habits, so be sure to tune in and join the conversation. We're also on Instagram and YouTube at Healing Harmful Habits, and on Twitter for now at Ben and Jamisa. As always, we really appreciate all your support on all these different platforms. It really means a lot to us. And now, as always, and without further ado, one more time for the end of season three, Elevation Beats.
1: ready to get started with our 50th episode i know i mean how you feel about round numbers
0: pretty good i think 50 is a cool number in general half a century
1: <laughs> yep which is another round number right yeah what is it with a human addiction to round is, numbers
0: is round number like the british way of saying an even
1: number yeah it is okay Mm-mm. no like 50 100 like numbers that's
2: that, an even number
1: numbers that you would round up to uh-huh.
2: Mm.
0: Sounds British to me. Mm. <laughs> How are you, Amin? Pretty good. Pretty good. Can't complain. Good. It's my weekend. Is your what? It's my weekend right now. Oh, yeah. I'm chilling.
1: So, today's episode Neuro Spiciness.
2: Neuro Spiciness. so are you wearing makeup? No.
1: I feel like there might be a little oh, lip... Is this for the cameras?
2: <laughs> Lord. Do I not always wear a lip gloss or nope. lipstick? Mm-mm. Nope. Please, somebody find me a new husband. Like, something as simple as, like, lip gloss and you don't even notice that.
0: Wow. Mm. I mean, can
1: you help us?
2: hmm We need to go back to that.
1: <laughs> um. So, today's episode on Neurospiceness also coincides with our 50th episode. Mm-hmm. And... The end of season three.
2: It is. We end on a neuro-spicy note.
1: You don't like that? Mm. So, why are we talking about neuro-spiciness, Jamisa?
2: I think there's a lo- lot of neuro-spiciness going on, not only in our household, but even in our family, extended family.
1: Do you have any interest in defining neuro-spiciness?
2: Um, how do we define neuro like? Okay, so neurospicy is in the thing. Let's talk, just say that. Is that how, th-
1: we, how are we going to talk about something we don't even know how to define?
2: Well, you can't define neuro. How would you define neurospicy?
1: Yeah, I can define it. Okay, please
2: you? define neurospicy.
1: So neurospicy, so, as if
2: this is like a diagnosis. But go ahead.
1: Oh, so now you're believing in the DSM-4, or is it five now? <laughs> I
2: think it's the five. It's five, yeah. buddy. <laughs>
1: All right. Um, so there is
2: no neurospicy in here, but in there. But go ahead.
1: Do you you want to start a debate about the DSM?
2: Oh, absolutely not! Oh, no, 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 life? no, buddy! <laughs> like, because I will, you and I'll be on the same page. But go ahead.
1: All right, So D. So neurospiciness is the intersection of different types of neurodiversity. Mm-hmm. So, for example, ADHD and autism mm-hmm. would be neurospicy. Mm-hmm. And so, why do you feel that's not? legitimate let's start there
2: oh i didn't say that but i'm just i don't want you to give out information like
1: but i always give out information that's not accurate
2: <laughs> oh my god
1: <laughs> it's kind of my brand
2: i don't even know what to say i'm about so that.
1: confused by this oh my god all right so neurospiciness is the intersection and so um Neurodivergent would include ADHD. Mm-hmm. Would include autism spectrum. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes includes um, bipolar. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, uh, let's see what else. Um, there's some I other think things those are like cigarettes, Yeah. Categories. I mean, you have other things like sensory processing. All those different things that will fall under Tourette's that. Tourette's and things like yeah. that.
1: Um, and so, in our family, neurospiciness is probably best represented by ADHD and autism. Right. And so where do we begin?
2: I don't know. Because There's so much all to of say. this has
1: kind of come up in the last two or three years in our life. Yeah. I mean, remember when we were dating, though, and I gave you a book?
2: You gave me a book about Asperger's, but that was right before the DSM. That was before DSM-5. And I was like, what the hell is he giving me this for? I thought
1: it was a super romantic gift.
2: Yeah, a book about Asperger's. And I'm like, I don't, like, I don't think I was in grad school or whatever. Then I was like, I don't know why I'm getting this book. And I tossed it. Should, you tossed it? I should have kept it and read it. Oh,
0: my goodness. Are you just now finding out finding about this? just finding out about
2: this, yeah. <laughs> but, was, you know, we're 11 a, years in at this point, so what are you going to do?
1: That was a I felt gift. Mm. Wow. So you tossed the book on neurodiversity that I offered you. so you could. Yeah, I tossed the a book better. on Asperger's. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these days, I mean, we could even start there a little bit, right? We don't use the term Asperger's anymore. Right. Um,
2: don't get me started about that. I just had such an issue with that when they changed it all to one thing. Okay.
1: But they haven't really changed it all to one thing, right? So if we're, we're going to bounce around a little bit today, I feel. But um, autism spectrum disorder definitely isn't one thing.
2: It's not one thing. I think I'm talking about they like grouped everything. I, people, I don't want to get into that because you... I kind of
1: feel like your neuro- neurodiversity is kicking in a little bit. What do you feel? No. All right. So let's start at the beginning. So when we first started dating, you felt like I was on the autism spectrum. You felt like many members of my family was on the autism spectrum. Mm -hmm. And you weren't really aware of the number of people in your own family. Right, that were also on the I think
2: I was aware, but and I'll talk about that in a few minutes about like how I think it really just came to like it was just came to light for me. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to talk about that?
1: Oh my goodness! I mean, <laughs> I mean, what what's your experience with uh, neurodiversity? Is there much of it in your family?
0: Not uh, how do I say not categorized correctly, probably
1: not. diet, like formally diagnosed. Yeah,
0: and I even struggle with it being a diagnosis
1: yeah. altogether. We're going to talk mm-hmm. about that some today, about mm-hmm. the process of diagnosis. Yeah. So one of the issues with autism in general is it's always been kind of controlled or, or I think, what do the kids say these days? Gatekeep it. Gatekeeped. Gate-kept, gatekept. Gatekept. Oh, my God.
2: Gatekepted? <laughs> 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 what the hell is that?
1: It's, there's always been some gatekeeping mm-hmm. by the non-neurodiverse community. Around neurodiversity.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think one of the most familiar symbols with the autism community... Is
2: the puzzle piece, right?
1: Yeah, don't get me everything started. But this represents a lot of what's happened with autism in the fact that non-autistic people created this logo to reflect that something was missing from these people. Mm-hmm. So the uh, modern-day logo designed by autistic people would be the infinity symbol. Mm-hmm. In the spectrum colors.
2: Right. Which is a
1: beautiful logo.
2: It is. We have one on our lawn. On our lawn? We have the sign, the flag. Ah, I mm. thought you
1: meant weird. Carved it into the <laughs> lawn somehow. I was unaware of this. I thought you might have done it as a gift for me today. Um, and so the infinity symbol represents the spectrum. Hmm. Um, but I think it represents the diversity of it. But the other thing I really like about the infinity symbol... Is moving away from this, like we talk about autism spectrum, but it's more like a web. Right. And so you show, you see it showing up in different ways with different people, with different intensities and things like that. Exactly. Um, And I think one of the things, I think this is probably the conclusion of today's show, we'll get to it and then we can just end and go home and have a drink, um, is that if we approach all people as being curious about who they are, how they function, we tend to have a much safer world. Absolutely. But we've been so focused through this kind of white supremacist lens. I was going to say
2: conditioned, if mm-hmm. you will, to think, I feel like we all have to think a certain way. And I just cut you off. I mean, you are d- about to say did it. Did
1: a black woman just interrupt me again? My goodness.
2: Why do you say this? As if you're like, oh my gosh, I can't with you today.
1: All right, there's some... Uh, jokes being made in the comment section terrible ones (laughs) yeah i don't think we're (laughs) gonna repeat those um but anyway so um i think the same is true that there's this conditioning that's happened that here is what it is to be human and we typically mean like a white male cis heterosexual Mm -hmm. and anything outside of that tends to get quote-unquote diagnosed Or tends to get like so. uh, Homosexuality used to be in the DSM Mm -hmm. as a quote-unquote mental health condition, and so you see this, this, um, this attempt by kind of authority figures in the country to constantly diagnose the different ways of existing and the different ways of being. So we'll talk about how some of those differences are reflected in our family, right? um, In our own lives, and we'll talk about what some of our suggestions are for families who find themselves to be Mm neuro-spicy. I mean, I think that was a much better intro. Maybe we should just start there with the podcast when we... All right. Sounds good with me. Cut out all the stuff Jamisa says. (laughs) Oh, like always? (laughs) (laughs) And then come back to the white male. (laughs) He's got some... (laughs) they are in trouble.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this is not humorous at all.
1: All right. So uh, moving forward, I think my jokes are as bad as uh, Indigo's jokes. (laughs) (laughs) on the um you you saw that one on the comment section on the the in and out burger
2: yep oh yeah he needs his op whoever that is so what i thought is interesting about um you talked about like learning about neuro um about my family (coughs) excuse me is that i think it really came to light maybe when we had to start dealing with like psychologists and getting and having diagnoses done do you want to have that conversation? Where do you want to start with this? Because I don't know if this is a green, yellow, red with talking mm. about neurospicy. Well, I
1: think we can get into green, yellow, red at the end when we talk about how you respond mm-hmm. to different types of neurodiversity. Okay. But yeah, I think, so you, you and I were dating, we had these kind of like, almost like humorous understanding that I was on the spectrum, mm-hmm. that members of my family were on the spectrum. We had kids, and then as one of our children got to like two or three, mm-hmm. we noticed there the, was they interacted with the world a little differently than their classmates right and things like that at preschool and um
2: well and i want I want to say this about the preschool about and i't to say the name of the preschool but the particular preschool that, that since been shut down <laughs> that our kid went to was amazing like just so amazing because they did not force they did not force the kid to like they conform to how they needed the classroom to be, to function. And so they worked around just how they were within the classroom. And that was such a beautiful thing. Um, And they were still able to get the same instructions, but they just didn't, wasn't like, you have to sit on the carpet because it's carpet time. If they didn't want to do that, they allowed those things to happen. And it was really nice to see.
1: And so based on that, and then based on um, our child's
2: pediatrician, Mm-hmm. saying, hey, you may want to get this kid. Assessed. And we waited for a while. Mm-hmm. Like We we got that suggestion, the suggestion, a recommendation came from the pediatrician, probably around age three. Um, and we're just like, no, we're going to wait. We're going to hold off on it. And then right around the time when they were about to leave 4K and going to uh, public school and to kindergarten, we was like, okay, let's let's do this then.
1: But I think what was interesting is the thing that probably prevented us from getting him assessed earlier was through our own misunderstanding of what autism is. Right. And so he was such a loving kid, always wanting to be held, always wanting mm-hmm. to be cuddled. And we had this thinking error that kids with autism. It weren't didn't want love. and
2: other people told us this, that love. dealt with uh with children on the spectrum and it was like yeah they're not really like engaging emotionally in that way but what was so eye-opening is when we when we had the assessment done with this particular psychologist um and he was so great and like really explaining to us what like the spectrum looked like and how every single child that is on the spectrum is going to look different. And so you have this generalization of what people think of someone being on the spectrum is so different. Um, and so he talked about that. He was like, your child is, you know, it's probably very loving and affectionate, like constantly with us, but he's not going to do that with other people. Like he's going to engage with you all, but he's not going to engage that way with other people. And we still see that now. Um, so that was just really, it was so eye opening. So, what was interesting when we talk about families is that, um, so the psychologist is getting background information. And so Ben is able to say, you know, yeah, I am on the spectrum, you know, I have this family member who's on the spectrum. And then he asked me, and I was like, huh. Like first and so I knew I have a first cousin whose son is on the spectrum but then I started thinking about other people I'm like yeah this person's on the spectrum this person's on the spectrum my uncle who you know even now is identified he's like yeah I'm, I'm likely on the spectrum because his son is on the spectrum and his son's nephew is on the spectrum and it's like how do you and I get together
1: mhm um I think it was my dance moves <laughs> <laughs> unless you didn't mean that literally
2: so it's really interesting that we were able Little to identify like people on the spectrum on both sides of our families.
1: Mm-hmm. So our son then got formally diagnosed. And from this came a lot of conversations with other people. And then one day we were talking to a friend and they announced, we'd known them for a long time, known them well for a long time. And they announced that they had been diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. Mm-hmm. And as they were talking about why they got diagnosed, some of the challenges they had, and then what me- um, medication intervention had done for them, Jamisa started thinking like, holy sh!
2: No, I think Ben actually had an intervention, and I, it was an indirect intervention. <laughs> I swear I think it was because, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, I'm sure about like what. I don't think people know you're
1: joking right now.
2: Oh, no, I'm really serious about well. I think he had like a for real intervention, and I didn't know it because I was really struggling like, Oh, this is like probably a year or two got I mean, just struggling. And um, and we talked about, like, we he and I had had these conversations, like, Jamisa, like, I think you, you know, you, I think you need to get, like, diagnosed. And I was like, no, like, just from what I know with clients I work with, I was, like, I'm likely, you know, um, ADD, or ADHD. And then, so this particular week, like, I'm really struggling. And then this friend comes over and they're hanging out. And just randomly, i walk out on the deck and he and Ben are talking and he's like, yeah, so I'm diagnosed with ADHD and I have medication management. I'm like, how convenient, how convenient Ben that this happened.
1: How convenient that he gets medication management?
2: No, no, no. How convenient that he's at the house at the time that I'm really struggling. And he just, just happens to just, you know, put that out there randomly. Mm -hmm. I do believe you did an intervention. I didn't know.
1: I don't know if that's part of the story, but go ahead. So you then became super curious, right? And as well, a, I
2: think we were curious before then, but yeah, I get what mm-hmm. you're saying. More probably more so about the interventions.
1: Um and so you became super curious. You started, even though you're a counselor and you knew a lot about ADHD, I think you were started becoming surprised, just like with our child, mm-hmm. as we started learning more about autism, we became surprised about how it's different than perhaps how we initially thought. Right. Um, you became really curious about it and then finally got diagnosed, correct? Right. How has it shaped you? How has it changed your world?
2: I, you know, I was, I had mentioned to you, I was I'm listening to this podcast um, and I need to, if we put this out on, um, we'll just give her props later because I can't remember her name right now. But she talked about like her diagnoses of both autism and ADHD and she said it and it just, it spoke clearly to me that like once I got the diagnosis, it was really eye opening.
1: So as you got your diagnosis and as you started to reflect... Was it
2: helpful? Was it painful? Was it? I think it was a little of both. Like, walk me through that. I think it was helpful in that it allowed me to kind of really, I think I became more curious maybe about like why, how my brain works and then what strengths I have, um, what deficits I have, uh, what I really have, like, I need, like, what help I need. Um, and I'm sure we can dive into that. Um, what I think was maybe sad about it is like the fact that, and that I didn't get diagnosed early. And I, I have to, and I also have to remind, remember that like I grew, I'm like, you know, I was born in like the mid seventies. So I'm in, the sc- in school in the eighties. No one was diagnosed with ADHD at that time. You just struggled. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, you and I talked about this. I'm like, you know, had I known this when I was in college about the ADHD and like how impactful and how hard it was hard for me in college, not even so much academic, but even emotionally, it was a just a really difficult time. And I think had I known this diagnosis, that would have made more sense. And I would have been able to have like the resources that I needed. Um, and I talked about how much I love like, um, like just different parts of like um, – psychology and counseling and how much I wanted to go into it like neuroscience but didn't think I was able to do that um and and not even I guess because cognitively I didn't think I could but I don't know if it was that I think it may have just been because of my ADHD I felt like I could not like, like you I didn't could, have the skill set no to go into that and so now I'm like man like you know, had I known that, had I known about the diagnoses, like resources that, that would could have possibly been out there at the the college that I attended, um, yeah, would have probably been a neuro been working with neuro in neuropsychology. Can't you still do that? Oh, uh, maybe.
1: I mean, you are fairly seasoned in life, but you still got a few years left, I bet. Whatever. What about you? Um, well, before before we jump to that. What you talk about these obstacles you had? What were they? Like, had or have had um, prior to the diagnosis? Things that you feel like you could have avoided had you been assessed. Now I'll I'll give you like were they problems or were they issues because the systems didn't really allow for them?
2: Um, I'm not sure, exactly sure how to answer that. I will say that. I can see where, like, people, and so this is my, I think it's a part of my issues of, like, with ADHD, um, is that when they, people talk about being impulsive and having impulsive types of behavior, I think people think about, like, you know, I'm sitting here in this chair, and all of a sudden I'm going to move over here and sit in the means chair. I'm going to, you know, just r- running around, and yes, that's. There's no microphone <clears throat> in the means chair. But there is, it doesn't look like that for me. Um I think I made careless mistakes in terms of like schoolwork academically, where I think if I had the ability to like and the skill set to know and understand about slowing down, or if there was like
1: executive functioning issues,
2: like five or four things that like so
1: explain executive functioning issues to people.
2: So, executive functioning are just kind of this uh, not skill set, but it's just like almost these innate things that we that neuro I guess neurotypical people maybe would have so being able to manage time not having time blindness regulating emotions um, being able to um, maybe even read different cues um, transitioning from one thing to another fairly with somewhat ease without it without having any emotional complications and those things I didn't have I still don't have those things Um, I understand them now because of the diagnoses, but they're also there's, there's skill sets that I have to actively and consciously work on. And for a lot of people, yeah. And a lot of people, they don't have to do that. And so for an example,
1: let's not not jump over prioritizing, because prioritizing is one of the ways it can most impact academics. Mm -hmm. So if you have 10 items to do, number one is get out of room because there's a fire in it. And number 10 is clip your nails. Like, it may be difficult, right, for someone with ADHD to, to put figure those out which, right? Order. Exactly,
2: and that still becomes. I mean, you know, this like that becomes an issue for me even now. But I, I understand that. But just imagine if you're in school and you're having to figure those things out. Mm-hmm. So you know, you whether it be uh, um, high school, middle school, college, and you're given this task, like you have this huge assignment. That is weighted heavily and they just like give it to you and say, you got to get this done by the end of year. And there's no guide. And then I have to figure that guide out. And then being in a household where academically I didn't have that support. So I had to figure those things out. And it was, you know, and it, all, it didn't always go well. You also mentioned time
1: blindness, which is a mm-hmm. phrase I'm familiar with, but maybe not not a lot of people will be. So can you explain that one?
2: So time blindness is where you are not aware of. Maybe time deadlines and being able to make those deadlines, whether that be a project, an assignment, or even like getting to a place, getting to work on time, getting to an event on time, where I will see 15 minutes of that. I have 15 minutes to get something done. We talked about this maybe the last a couple of episodes ago, where it's like, you know, we have 15 minutes to get at the house and get someplace on time. And in those 15 minutes, my brain is like, I can like, run upstairs and like make up the kid's bed and then I can go feed the dog and I can go get some poop out of the yard and I can be done in 15 minutes. And I really, but there's never, there's no space there for me to stop and say, you know what, you don't have 15 minutes. Like I just go from one thing to the next. And I really do think in my head that I can get those things done. And before you know it, we're running late. And when I was growing up, there was a lot of shame around that. About being late, or I would find myself almost like drifting off. Even in your family,
1: ones like <laughs> really. <laughs> and maybe we're all.
2: Like, maybe we all have should be diagnosed then mm-hmm. with that time blindness. But I, I would even I, I did this a few weeks ago. You didn't notice. I don't think you were around. But I um, was it when you had that fellow over. I remember <laughs> just like almost being. I think I was in our room or something, and I did not realize how much time had actually lapsed. And I was like, I can't, what am I doing? I've been in here for like 20 minutes. I need to be doing something else. Um, But those things would happen where I just would not recognize like how long I've actually been doing like one particular thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't even a task that needed to get done in the house. I just, I don't know what even what I was doing that day, but I just recognized like, I've been in here for a really long time.
1: And it'll be things like the kids will be running late for school and we'll be trying to get out of the house. And Jamisa will decide like, I think I'll empty the dishwasher now. And there's so many things that need to get done just to get the
2: kids out of the house. I'm already running late. This happened this week, didn't it? Because Ben wakes up and I'm like, I'm going to unload the dishwasher. And the dishwasher's open. We're trying to get the kids ready, like get them fed to get out the house on time. And he's like, could you please close this dishwasher?
1: And so, or you'd be like going to pick the kids up for school and you'd have five minutes before the bell got out and you'd be like, I'm going to stop by Earth Fair and grab some groceries. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like... I don't think you have time for that. You're like, oh, I can squeeze it in. And then when you would be late to pick them up, you'd be surprised. And so it was interesting because from an outsider's perspective, it's really bizarre to watch.
2: Well, I think people just think like you're just being a slacker or you're just mm-hmm. like, you don't care. Mm-hmm. It's not a priority to you that, you know, to get the kids and And it's not, that's not the case. Um, I think we have another good example. I don't know if you want to share it now. It's, it, it's not time blindness, but... So Since let's get the time to time blindness and move wedding. over. Move on. So, um, yeah, so time blindness is a really big thing you for me. don't want to me. talk
1: about being late to the wedding?
2: No, I don't want to talk about that.
1: Okay. <laughs> what were you going to talk about before we talked about being late to the wedding?
2: No, go ahead.
1: Um, and I think you continue to see this with all types of neurodiversity is that because the norm sets some sort of ethical uh, morality that if you operate outside of that norm, you're somehow considered less than. So if Yeah, you,
2: there's some deficit. Mm-hmm.
1: So if you don't adhere to time norms, if you don't adhere to social norms, if you don't mm-hmm. adhere to these things, it's not considered neurodiversity. It's considered there's something wrong with you. Right. And so when I was growing up, we didn't have autism being diagnosed very often. Um, the field was still in its infancy. And so people like me would be considered eccentric. Mm-hmm. And so I remember I had a, I think it was a great granddad. Um, I could be wrong here, but when he was like 27, 28, he had a large family. And one day he decided he was just going to leave him and wander off and, uh, go do the crossword puzzles in, um, what in England, we call it squatting. Like Mm -hmm. you find a vacant home and just go live in it. And so he did that. And, um, I remember my family explaining that, not explaining it, but just mentioning it and laughing and being like, yep, there's some eccentric people in the family without like any understanding of why someone's brain
3: mm-hmm. may
1: see that as important mm-hmm. or why the sensory experience of day-to-day life might have overwhelmed that individual.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I think what's really interesting about neurodiversity or one of the ways it really shapes my worldview is this kind of tie-in, and I can I can hear European Americans groaning now, but is this tie into kind of white supremacist norms. Like, you start messing with time in a white supremacist culture, ooh, people are going to struggle with you. Mm-hmm. Because everything's around on that efficiency. Everything's around on that mm-hmm. sense of, like, um, that time is an ethical um, mm-hmm. reality. And so I think we see that all the time. Like, even I had a uh, son at the dentist the other day, and um, he's the one diagnosed with autism. And so at the dentist, you have a lot of sensory stuff.
2: And he, he, you're not going to just, like, he's not going to go into the dentist's office and they're messing around with him and he is looking around and he's like, what are you doing? What is that? Why are you putting this in my mouth? And it requires a certain amount of patience because he will not allow you to put any tools around his mouth or if even if he's getting his eyes checked, unless it is explained to him what you're doing and why.
1: And so... The assistant, or I'm not sure, dental hygienist, hygienist um, would was almost approaching it from a morality issue. Like, mm-hmm. Don't you want to be a good boy, Oliver? And in my head, I'm like, I don't think he's being a bad boy. Right, he just needs he's to just know. just being a boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's just being a, 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 a young, curious, yeah. young human with autism. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what else is interesting is we look at how outsiders do this, but you and I do this with each other, right? So, like, in autism it's very typical to trade information as a bonding experience. Mm-hmm. So like me and close friends who are autistic, we kind of share our lives with each other very openly, very quickly. Mm-hmm. And at times you'll be like, Ben.
2: You're getting, it's too quick.
1: Yeah, like you'll be like, Ben, um, it's not appropriate to trauma dump like that. It's not mm-hmm. appropriate to share that much information. Mm-hmm. But yet the other autistic person, I'll be like, oh, doing the exact is same thing, yeah. And so for you, it's almost like you put a little... Like, it's not appropriate, like that kind of social norming mm-hmm. stuff. And then I did the same thing with you in time. Mm-hmm. Like, Jamisa, it feels like you don't care about me mm-hmm. when you show up to the wedding three hours late.
2: Oh, my gosh. Ben, it was not three hours. Why do you keep bringing this up? I feel like you want to talk about it, and we're not going to. So let's stop that
1: and continue. But you know what I mean? Like, we, we've even been, quote, unquote, guilty of this ourselves with each other. Sure. And so... It it it's difficult for me to have empathy when I see other people trying to shame neurodiverse people. But at the same time, I've done it,
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it
1: um, with you mm-hmm. and I've done it with myself. Yeah. Like growing up, I don't know if this is something you experienced with ADHD, but growing up, there's always that feeling of like, what the hell is wrong with me?
2: No, I, I did feel that way because like I said, there would be like, there were, and I think I found there was just shame more probably, about academic things, because other people in my family, um, like, you know, they were able to, like, easily, like, you know, be on an honor roll, or be on the principal, scholar, or whatever, and it would be, like, these little simple mistakes that I knew I was able to do, but I just could not get it right, and I really did, would think about, like, there is something wrong with me, or, like, um, and I, I do this now, like, I talk, I used to talk so much when I was growing up, like, it was just endless, just running off at the mouth constantly. And I would get shamed for that. Like, why can't you just be quiet? Like why do you constantly have to talk? Or even cutting people off and, and just not be clear, understanding why. We
1: were together. It's not me <laughs> shaming you. No, no. This
2: is growing up as a child. Like so <laughs> there was always something wrong with the fact that you're constantly like just needing to like have conversation and I was the only child. So it wasn't like I was interacting with other kids in my household. So my mom had to endure (laughs) my constant rambling. And I think at some point she's like, I can't do this with you anymore. Um, So it's just, and and those things now I understand that's kind of part of it all. Um, But there was just shame around that. So I'm just like, okay, well, let me just go into my little shell um, because I don't know what else to do.
1: And so you asked me a question about autism and kind of how I, learned about it and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So it always jokingly being talked about in my family right. as it became more prevalent. Um, it switched from being eccentric to being aspergers
2: And I think we've thrown that around in your mm-hmm. family, right? Like someone's having a moment.
1: And then as the DSM changed and suddenly the reality of neurodiversity changed, mm-hmm. um, then I think this understanding of when Oliver was getting... Uh, sorry, when our son was getting diagnosed. Don't worry, we don't have any watches. Uh, yeah. When our son was getting diagnosed of... Um, I think it was when the doctor said, Ben, you should probably get diagnosed <laughs> <laughs> with autism. And I, but I never thought I was fully because I do really want love too. And One of the most heartbreaking things he shared with us was that, um, I may have read it actually, but that autistic people want love just as much as neurotypical mm-hmm. people, but they get so hurt... By their request for love being rejected, that they stop requesting it, mm-hmm. and that was one of the most painful things I think I ever heard.
2: And it's done in a different way, though, and we see this with That's our
1: super vulnerable. Oh, I'm sorry, I was going to
2: talk about our son, but go ahead. I apologize. Mm-mm, go ahead. I was going to say, I think even with the him, vulnerability like vulnerability
1: door has closed.
2: It is like the way that he does it. I think if you don't, and I can see where parents who may be busy and they don't have, they don't have a true understanding of that. Like how that may, it just looks different, right? Even mm-hmm. with him and, and how he wants it. And even the times that he wants it. And you were just like, okay, I don't, you know, he just had, you know, uh, this full on meltdown about something. And then five minutes later, he's okay. And he's like, okay, I need you to give me, like I need you to love on me. And having to do those things. Um, and I see that with I have quite I have not quite a few I have a few clients that are on the spectrum, and one of them in particular is very much like that with their with their caregiver, um, is that they will come in and the caregiver is like we just had a rough week and they, the the person that's on the spectrum may even say something, um, where it's like you know the caregiver is like this is not appropriate like I'm really upset that you said this to me right now and he's like all right can I have a hug. And the caregiver is so, like, he it's just amazing to see. He's like, all right, give me a hug. But again, this is not okay. Mm-hmm. And, but you don't, I think what happens is that, like, it's done in such a way that I think, like you said, it's the way that the person is asking for for love, The per, they just don't get it.
1: And so my learning has developed to the point where I'm recognizing people with autism tend to be much more emotionally sensitive. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also build up a much stronger mask than mm-hmm. most
2: neurotypicals, yeah,
1: because of how much that sensitivity gets hurt,
2: yeah, absolutely.
1: And so, growing up, I remember feeling very sensitive to a lot of things, but also continually receiving this message that that sensitivity was wrong—sensitivity
2: to like sensory, to to relationships, environments.
1: to environments, mm-hmm. to sensory stuff,
2: just mm-hmm. all of it. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, one of the ways I've heard autism described is that there's much less pruning, like a n- neuron pruning right. that has happened. And so you have a lot more neurons and a lot more connections. And mm-hmm. it's almost like the brain is overwhelmed
3: mm-hmm.
1: because it's receiving so much information and trying to process so much information. Mm-hmm. And obviously that represents different ways um, with different intensities of autism or different kind of areas of autism. Um, but the main ways that we see autism showing up... Um, that I've come to understand it, is one, like an intense focus on specific things. Right. Um, a, re- a repetitive intensity. Um, the second area is a challenge in what I call theory of mind, which is when a child's young and they have their eyes closed and they think no one else can see them because their eyes are closed, That w- that's a theory of mind, like how you experience other people's experience. Mm-hmm. And so for me and for other people who I know diagnosed with autism, they tend to sometimes struggle to understand that someone else may not have the same interest that they have. And so if I'm like, hey, Amin, let's talk about um, the fungal root system and how it connects trees together. And if he looks bored, I may not pick up on that. And I may be super curious or confused if he was bored. Like, Mm -hmm. how could you be bored with this? This is... You do tell me that. This is the web of the universe.
2: When, you, when we talk about this.
1: I still don't understand how you can be bored with it. <laughs> like it literally explains the whole universe. But anyway, I'm going to get stuck. Let me come back. So, um, and I think a, a third area for this is then the kind of external sensory processing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: What's fascinating to me is as I learn more about this, um, and as I started communicating with people more about it, how many close friends were like, holy shit, and either went and got formally diagnosed themselves or, as is becoming more um, common in the autism community, self-diagnosing. Right. Because in order to get formally diagnosed as an adult...
2: You, you had have to go to someone who is tip who is neurotypical, right? Ten, th- usually. that.
1: <laughs> you have to wait maybe one to two years mm-hmm. to see them. You have to spend a lot of money, mm-hmm. and then the diagnosis doesn't really do anything. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can take meds for it. Right. The other thing is... I, one of the things I love about the autistic community is that they're so open to the idea that no one else is going to self-diagnose themselves with autism unless they're autistic. <laughs> like, this is such an autistic trait. I remember seeing this really funny TikTok where they say, like, oh, I don't think I'm autistic. Because when I heard about it, I researched it intently for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for 365 <laughs> days. <laughs> She's like, and I'm sure I'm not. <laughs> and it's like this sense of like... There's so many things that you just start to see like, oh, that's autism spectrum stuff. right? Um, and so they hear friends even in conversation and stuff, you hear it before they've even heard it. Yeah. But the other thing that I think people on the autism spectrum have in common is this like sense of relief when they gain insight into this neurodiversity and in spending time with other autistic people. So like now, I would say like 75% of my social group is Some neuro, spice,
2: neuro mm-hmm. spicy. And what's interesting. But what's, you also think
1: I got ADHD too, right?
2: So, yeah. And uh,
1: hence the neuro spiciness.
2: And I, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm about to, like, you're not direct to me, so I'm going to go back and forth with stuff. So let me stick with the, the autism thing um, okay. with Spectrum. Is what is, what I, I think, what is really interesting with um, Spectrum stuff is, is about the masking about having to, feeling uh, feeling as though you have to conform to like these social norms. Um, scripts. These scripts, yeah. And so I see that with our son. So I will go and volunteer in his classroom and how our son is at home is uh, like, it, it's almost, I, I was so concerned when I saw him at school because at home he is truly unmasked. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, when he is at school, like I remember walking into the classroom, and though he's he's still gonna say what he wants to say, and he's direct, he's so quiet and he's shy, and like he's almost talking in like I mean, a do mouse voice. Mean to talk about what
1: was in front of the camera, right there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, oh, it, technical difficulties. He, no,
2: but it's know. almost like, like he was almost at a whisper mm-hmm. when he talks to people, um, talking to his his, and he and they like, just talking to his classmates and things. And then to, and it's all mass. I know it's all mass. And then because as soon as we get into the car, like I'll ask him how his day was and he will disassociate for a little bit. Like he just, he's not going to say anything. He's very quiet for about 15 to 20 minutes. And then once he's gotten his bearings about this transition from school to home, he is definitely back to being his unmasked self. And, I'm glad, and I'm also sad, like, I'm glad that he didn't feel like that he has a mask at home with us, that he can 100% be himself, but then also sadness in that he doesn't feel like he can go to school and actually be himself, and be who he is at home, um, and, at the, you know, they're out of school now, and his teachers, have sent one of his teachers sent a letter home, Is like, he definitely has gained more confidence from the beginning of the year to the end of the year, and I hope that is, our way of seeing that maybe he's feeling a bit more comfortable with just being who he is even at school.
1: And the stress of learning these scripts Mm -hmm. and performing in a neurotypical way, you often describe it as similar to code switching in the black community.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: The stress of having to show up and act in, like, white, typical ways um, in the workplace and elsewhere. Mm -hmm.
2: And what's so really unfortunate about, I have two... female clients, identify female, female clients that are on the spectrum. And one of them is able to kind of turn that mask on and off. Like they are they're very much masked when they're in classes, not in classes, they can be themselves. But then the other client has to mask all the time. And so we had that conversation recently and, uh, you know, about like how like it is really difficult for them because it, it causes them other, they like just, um, Problems and other air, emotional problems in their lives, and like Jamisa, I don't know how to not be unmasked. They had to not be masked. Like, they, I don't understand. I don't know what that looks like, um, and really having to like just processing that.
1: So in this season, we're talking a lot about families. What do you think we do well in caring for ourselves and our our spiciness, and caring for our children and their neurospiciness that would be helpful to other families?
2: I think you and I, as of recently, especially with the diagnosis and me having more conversations and having a true understanding about, like, what this means for me, um, is just talking about that and looking at areas that I need um, support in from you mm-hmm. and n- maybe not seeing that as, like, it's a problem, but, like, Jamisa just needs more support in this area because she gets overwhelmed here or she gets overstimulated here. I think with our children, and I think with you, just really listening to when what...
1: It- Before you talk about being overstimulated, it is a PG show.
2: (laughs) And so even with you, I think it is understanding. um, It means my biggest fan. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) what, what, What being on the spectrum means for you, because every single person who's on the spectrum just the people and from my practice that I work with on the spectrum, every single one of them look different, mm-hmm. right? It, and it affects them in different ways of their lives. And it's no different than you and the uh, a friend of ours who's at our house a bunch, and they are also on the spectrum, and it looks different. And so just being able to understand it for you and what that means and being- um, You
1: think it looks different because they're black?
2: Anyways, I'm ignoring- Well, Whatever. I don't even know if you meant that sincerely or not, so I'm not going to answer that. Um, The other part of it, I think with our kids, is that we have, I think we've done really well with being accepting our son just where he is. Um, And
1: So gentle parenting is a new thing in parenting, uh right? And I think if you're going to have neurodiverse kids, gentle parenting is a
2: must. Mm -hmm. The other thing we have done, I think, really well is really advocating for him at school. Um, And I think we did well with, like... Just um, guarding certain things about about all about our son um, with teachers and just um, and just staying on top of like where he is socially, where he is emotionally um, at the school.
1: So you are a black woman, right?
2: I think so. Do
1: you feel there's a difference between? Well, let me back up from that. Do you think there's? I see so many similarities between like being black and having to code switch and having to live up to these expectations and having to deal with kind of white normative values mm-hmm. and then being neuroatypical and having to do similar stuff. All right. Um, what do you think? Uh, do you agree with that kind of assessment in a broad way? And then how do you think also the black community experiences neurodiversity differently than how the white community experiences?
2: I think it's all the things that you just mentioned, right? So not only do we have to navigate um, in a society that we're coming in um, at a bit of a, well, not a bit, at a disadvantage. But then on top of that, so now we're having to overperform just to kind of keep up with what would be considered like just some standard stuff. But then on top of that, you have someone who is, you know, on the spectrum or who's ADHD and they're having to go over and beyond that just to keep up. And it's exhausting, you know. So now I have to figure out, like, what are the social cues of, you know, sometimes I may interrupt people and it's not done maliciously. I don't care what they have to say. Like, it's just the ADHD. Like, I I feel like almost like, like almost a, a tick where I'm just like, I have to jump in and say this. Um, and so that makes it even more difficult. And I think just even the diagnoses, like I had some information about like diagnoses within the black community um for children Uh-oh, who are I mean, diagnosed she's putting with the <laughs> Um on the spectrum. Where did I find let's see. Um so first of all, 78% of ASD diagnoses are often people are I mean are children identified as male. Like seventy that is so that's so crazy to me. Um,
1: so the assertion there or the connection is that once again, white males mm-hmm. are probably much more likely to get diagnosed, much Absolutely. more likely to get treated, yep. much more likely to receive the support of the medical establishment mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. neurotypicality.
2: Mm-hmm. Because if you have a child, your stats
1: I, go on though, right? Like to support sorry? your stats go on, right? Just to continue to support that.
2: Yes, absolutely. It, cont- it talks about like how, and, um, and then they broke down the percentage of black Americans and um, Hispanic children or Latino community that's diagnosed with ASD. And it's, it is lower than you would have typically of white children, male, identified male or female um, in our society. And they talked about like how, and it's because of, um, and there's been an increase over the past few years Anderson and because it's much more awareness around ASD, there's much more awareness and advocacy for um, minority children who may have similar type of behavior or behavior at three, four, five, six to consider instead of it being a behavioral issue, like this child could very well be on the spectrum or this child could have ADHD. And that was the other thing. I think I have some numbers about that, too. Um, with ADHD, um, black children are—I um, think th- only 36% of black children are diagnosed with ADHD, um, and that is—that's crazy, right? And the, and I think in females being diagnosed with ADHD is just—it's real. It really occurs because masking happens very early. ADHD and ASD, masking happens earlier with girls than it often does with boys because of these societal norms, I think, that are automatically put on young girls at a young age, right? You don't speak up. You need to be quiet. You need to be polite. You don't interrupt people. And there's so much shame around that that there becomes masking at an earlier age.
1: And I'm just continually thinking about these things. And I mean, having dropped out of medical school because you couldn't perform... I'm wondering uh, about your perspective on this. Do you feel that the same way that cancer is more likely to be diagnosed in the white community, more likely to be treated in the white community, do you feel that those similarities are reflected in those stats?
3: Yeah,
0: for sure. And I think a lot of it, especially with anything psychological, I think white kids and white people usually get a lot more benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. They get a lot more advocacy when they act out, it's, oh, let's help they get this kid heard a lot more quickly. Mm-hmm. Yes. Whereas when any minority acts out, it's, no, oh, that's what they do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think uh, it's that morality again? Like, if a, if a person of color is acting out, it's a morality issue mm-hmm. versus if a white person's acting, there's got to be a reason here. Right. Uh, there's probably yeah. mental health in the family.
0: Yeah, exactly like mm-hmm. how we see with like murderers, even. Mm-hmm. Like they'll be like, oh, look at them. He was a happy family man. Also, he killed six people. Mm-hmm. When it's a minority, I, it's like, oh, what other affiliations he did he it when have? When he was four.
1: <laughs> right, <Yep>. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like. Yep. <laughs>
2: And that was one of the things that uh, when I referenced at the beginning of the episode about the the preschool that our, our son went to, about how beautiful that was, like he had teachers, like all of his teachers... I think were uh, were um, were Black Americans, and they just we did
1: the paper bag test, and they passed.
2: And it was so beautiful to see, like they were just like this, and we we you know we were even questioning. I think that time the pediatrician like, "Hey, I think this is you know this is probably what's happening right now," and they're like, "You know what? It's fine." Like, we, you know, they weren't like, we're going we're gonna to make him sit. And they're like, when he's ready to sit, he'll sit. And if he doesn't, if he want to walk around. And they allowed those things to happen. It was so nice as opposed to this is a morality issue. You need to figure out how to properly, like, care or raise your kid. So in
1: the same way that we approach um, black children, I think there, there's a lot of crossover to how we start working with kids with ADHD mm-hmm. and kids with autism. And instead of making it a morality issue, make it a curiosity issue. Mm-hmm. Like I wonder what's going on here. I wonder why, and I think in parenting, whether you whether you're working with your spouse or whether you're working with your children, it's that same thing. Right. So like thinking Jamisa probably doesn't mean to be late. Like it's not an intentional um, harm thing. There's a curiosity here that she processes time very differently. Mm-hmm. But I think people don't like complexity.
2: No, I mean and. In- um, so I talked about the podcast as well. And the lady who um, the who has this podcast, you, she talked about, like, with the ADHD. I, the I cannot think of the name of it. We'll have to give it props maybe on another social media site later. Mm-hmm. But she talked about how. I on um, my OnlyFans. <laughs> really? She talked about, like, how she struggled with, like, prioritizing and planning and how like her friends would be like, hey, so-and-so, yeah, you could just like go online and like enroll in this or you can like just, you know, put your meals together and and make a meal for your family and just like, you know, things for people that just seem so easy to to do. It was incredibly difficult and I feel, I was like, oh my God, that is me. Like, you know, we talk about like Ben cooks most of the time in our family and I enjoy cooking but the thought of having to like put a meal together and like having three or four different things to do is so overwhelming for me that it just feels like my brain is going to break, you know, if I have to do that. And I'll do it, of course, if I have to, if, you know, if Ben's out of town or I just need to cook, but it is so much effort, like mental effort to do that. Like something as simple as like planning if the kids are out of school and they're staying with me for a couple of days and I got to go to work and deal with them. Like that is not easy for me to do. Like it is a lot of stress and anxiety.
1: And I've noticed on the weeks that I'm gone on my OnlyFans tours oh um, that you do seem a lot more stressed. OnlyFans tours,
2: things. yeah. So I think it's figuring I'll out in Washington. D. It's figuring out, out what week. what those and understanding like it's not. And I I want to say that because you talked to you referenced a few times about me being late, but it's not. That's just not. It is so many other things hmm. that we have to like move around and like I'm starting to understand more. Um, and just adjusting where we need to.
1: One of my friends with ADHD talks about the open cabinet diagnosis.
2: My mom is that way. I talked to her about that. <laughs> my mom would be in our house, and I'm like, she has like the pantry door open and the cabinet mm-hmm. door. She left the microwave door. I was like, mm-hmm. Mom, look around. She's like, What? Mm-hmm. I was like, mm-hmm. well, You have all this stuff. Oh, I
1: mean, did something hit home? Do you <laughs> yeah, leave all your things bit. open? Yep. <laughs> I get in trouble for it all the time. But you notice that language, mm. I get in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. Like you're doing something wrong. Yep. And we see this over and over mm-hmm. and over again with neurodiversity, this sense of like if you operate out of the norm, like what value have we placed on cabinet doors being shut? Yeah. Like how did that become like an ethical issue? But these things do. Mm-hmm. Being on time, cabinet doors being shut, mm-hmm. all these types of things. And so I think that's what I find fascinating and that's what I wish people would become more curious about. Mm-hmm. Like why have we decided what's wrong wrong when it, it's not hurting
2: Anybody? So, and this is, you were talking about... Um, we
1: have to wrap up sometime soon, too.
2: Okay, well, go ahead. What were you going to say? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Did I interrupt you? <laughs> yeah, and I can't... I'm not going to be able to bring you back.
1: So, going back to the wedding. To the what? Never mind. Um, so, I think this whole season, right? Um, season three has been about, can people create more space in their families to just see people, hear people move away from these like judgments that we've inherited from our other generations and resolve this generational trauma by just being present for each other and present for mm-hmm. yourself. And I think all of those skills really support having neurospicy families. Yeah.
2: I will say that since I think just but even before being formally diagnosed with the ADHD um and especially now, you know, since I have been diagnosed, one of the things that has really helped me in my practice Um, in my clinical practice in that I always uh, now I spend a lot of time talking about like what does how does your brain work how does it how do you function day to day um, versus this is how things are supposed your brain you're supposed to be this way because that to me like the moment I can start thinking about that in that way like how does how what are what's what's easy for me what's difficult for me in my life what causes me anxiety what doesn't like it makes it I can function a bit easier. And so I I do encourage people to think about that. Like how do they move about in their lives from a day to day? How do they think about things? Um, Because I think it explains so much. Mm
1: -hmm. Like a tree grows a certain way because all trees are trying to reach the sun, but they have to take different paths to Mm -hmm. get there. And so you can often tell, like they go back and look at the rings of a tree and how each ring represents a year of growth. And they can tell a lot about the weather by what was happening with the tree rings that year. It's fascinating. But we don't offer humans the same kind of curiosity. And just that analogy, like all humans are trying to reach the sun and they're picking different paths to get there based on the obstacles, both external and internal. And if you offer people that curiosity, um, especially in your family, especially with your partners, then you realize like all this morality gets removed. One of the things that I've noticed in working with abusive men for 25 years now is that they love to make things about morals. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Like they love to seek this moral high ground and let their partner know how they're underperforming.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: This is why I find a lot of religion so toxic. This is why I find a lot of um, politics so toxic, because everyone trying to demonstrate to other people how they're somehow not moral.
2: And um, I was going to, what I was about to say kind of ties into what you're talking about. And I think it'll also tie into our next season. Um, our topic for the next season is like dealing with or having a child of color who's on the spectrum. And like what that actually means. Right. Because we know that how our son operates and like he is going to let you know if something is not right. If he doesn't think something is right, if he thinks you should be doing something different, like he's going to say it. And if it could be me, it can be Ben, it could be someone else. Um, We see this now when we go shopping.
1: He's With like him. He's telling store owners how to run their stores. Yeah.
2: He's like, why can't we go up here? Like, you should be, like, we should be, you should be checking us out now. So, and so we have to coach him now, like, hey, when they'll let us know when we're ready. But imagine, and I want him to have that. Like, I want him to, you know, I don't want him to mask those things. But at the same time, what problems could that create for him in the community when he's a teenager and he's on his own and he may have to encounter, a police officer. And that police officer may have pulled him over and without any cause. And, you know, and what potentially, what problems would that potentially cause for him? I mean, it's a scary thing when you have to think about that way, where you're kind of like, okay, now at this point, I need you to mask. You know, all these other areas in real life, you don't mask. Um, and so it, it really becomes, those are things that we, um, Ben and I, spend a lot of time talking about.
1: All right. So season three is about to come to an end. Season four will start in two weeks, and uh, the theme in season four is going to be race Mm -hmm. and intersectionality, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, So we'll be talking about Hero, Victim, Offender. We'll be talking about all your cognitive behavioral inquiry favorites, (laughs) all the hot takes, foxes and chickens, all of that kind of stuff. But we'll be doing it through the lens of race and um, also the lens of our relationship and our experience at home. I mean, you've been kind of quiet today. Yeah, very uh, self-reflective, I think. Is it because you're curious whether you're going to vote for Ronnie or Donald?
0: That, and also, uh, I don't know, I, I might be quite neurospicy. <laughs> he, he
2: definitely is. I mean, are you serious? Like, I mean, you talk, we're talking, and you're, like, you're just walking and talking. <coughs> like, you have, I, 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 it was so I funny. Every cabinet door <laughs> is open in your kitchen.
0: Let me just look at my office decorations. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> it's so funny. I was um, talking to me before. I think in between a session or something yesterday, and I was eating in the kitchen, and he was talking, and I can hear him walking. You're saying that. it. I'm like, he, he's just, he's just pacing as he's talking, which is fine. But I just thought about that. And I was like, yeah, he's walking around. Yep. <laughs>
1: All right. Have a great day, everyone.